Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast, episode 221. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm very glad you joined us. It's good to have you here. Uh, this is a, uh, let's spend a pleasant 15 minutes together, all right? So I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that I was reflecting on uh, today, maybe yesterday, maybe both. Uh, and it had to do with people's reaction, people's reaction to COVID. But there's a pattern of thought that we need to uh, take note of. I'm going to appear to I'm going to be, uh, I will appear to be jumping the tracks here, but I'm not really. Uh, in uh, Henry Hazlitt's fine book, Economics in One Lesson, he, uh, he goes over what's called the broken window fallacy, the broken window fallacy. And that's the idea that if someone throws a brick through a window, then that's, uh, that's a, you know, job creation. That, that gives extra business to the glazier and the, the window shop guy. Is going to have, if someone who went up Main Street and down Main Street breaking windows, it might be the best week that the uh, glass and awning uh, place has had in a number of years. However, destruction is still destruction, and it's a it's a net negative, not a net positive. The optical illusion is created because the positive is all located in one place, and you could send a television reporter down there and interview him, and he could say things like, yeah, I don't know what happened, but man, we've never had, we've never had this, this kind of week ever. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to buy the kids a new pair of shoes because we're having such a good, uh, good week. Now, what's going on? The benefit of all those broken windows is located in one place and it's photographable. And the negative, the negative consequences of it, which are much, much larger, are spread up and down Main Street. There, and you can't go interview someone. There are, there are, let's say, 20 merchants who now say, you know, I thought I was going to be able to get my kids a new pair of sneakers for Christmas, but now I, but now I can't because I've got to replace the window in, uh, in, my, in my shop. Well, those people, those 20, never make it onto television, and the guy who's having a grand old time does. Or you can flip it around. Let's say a mean, nasty corporation just makes the decision to close down a factory. That factory is photographable. That factory has a fence around it. That factory can have television crews sent to it. That factory has particular people with names and faces that can be interviewed. And the reporter can say, how does it feel to be laid off two days before your birthday? And then you've got this story on television. But the, the corporation made the decision to close the factory in order to keep other factories open and consolidate and streamline and hire, other, hire people, right? But those benefits are dispersed all over the continent, and there's no way to go interview the beneficiaries of the decision. So in a, in a situation like that where you've got the negative effects of the decision all located in one place, or in the first illustration where you've got the positive all located in one place, you can photograph it. Now, what we're dealing with in our, how should we put this? 
We live in a time when virtually everyone has a high-definition camera in their pocket. And we've gotten to the point where when something remarkable happens somewhere, I mean, uh, it could be a plane crash, it could be a riot at the White House, it could be, you know, it could be a disturbance outside a bar in the middle of South Dakota. Whenever an incident happens, I kind of expect footage, <laughs> right? Don't you? We expect someone to be around with a camera. We expect someone to be around filming it. Cameras are absolutely everywhere. Now, what that means is that you've got a, uh, in the old days, when you closed down the factory or when the guy at the glass and awning shop was having his good week, it used to be that there was one camera in town, one good camera in town, and the editor at the television station would have to send that camera somewhere in order to get footage. But now everybody's got a camera and you've got 10,000 interviews, 10,000 anecdotes, 10,000 uh, visual images of this, that, and the other. And these images are all competing for airtime. And then people select which ones they're going to watch in a spirit of confirmation bias. Wh which anecdote, which story, which uh, visual image is going to reinforce what I want to think and what I already do think. Now, so for, with, with regard to COVID, if you, what you need to do is, uh, so we've got a, a, a disease which is survived by 99% of the people who catch it. If you catch COVID, you've got a 1% chance of it being a really serious problem. And in many cases, depending on what cohort you're in, if, you're, if you've got what they call comorbidities, you've got a higher uh, chance of trouble. If you are in a low-risk group, it's way, way beneath 1% chance of trouble. But it's a big country. We've got millions of people here. And you can find someone gasping for air in a hospital bed somewhere. And you can get a camera and talk to them about how they didn't take the vaccine, etc. And you don't show, you don't tell the story about the hundreds of thousands of people who didn't take the vaccine either, and then nothing like this happened. Now, I grant this is, this is important. It's also true that you can do the same thing with someone who has a negative vaccine reaction. So depending on, depending on which website you frequent, if you go to some websites, you're going to see all kinds of stories about COVID fat fatalities. If you go to other websites, you're going to see all kinds of data about vaccine fatalities, right? And my point is that one anecdote, one visual image, one story by itself in a country full of millions of people tells you nothing, tells you nothing. A goose egg, zilch, not a nothing. Now, if you've got a striking example, you ought to say, okay, a striking example of a COVID fatality or a striking example of a vaccine fatality ought to be enough to make you serve up an indictment where you go check. Okay, I, I saw this. I saw this story. I wonder what the data represents. Uh, let's, can, I, can I look at a set of people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people? Can I, can I look at what the, uh, 
vaccine reactions are compared to other vaccine reactions, different vaccines. Is this normal? Is this out of the ordinary? What is this? But the anecdote, the thing that you can see by itself ought not to be persuasive, not even a little bit. You should look at that and you should say, huh, I wonder what a more thorough review of this would, would show. So if you see a vaccine reaction, don't just gobble it down as though that were the truth simply because you saw it on the internet. If you see a COVID uh, story, don't gobble it down. Check it out. What Now, last thing, I'll just um, uh, note this, and it's, it's, it's important. If you, were just a, if you just landed here uh, from Mars and you didn't know anything about what was going on, you were, watched this debate going back and forth, uh, you wouldn't know which side was right. You wouldn't know which side was being scientifically responsible, etc. But you should be able to tell within a, just a couple of days which side is not letting the other side talk. You should be able to tell which side is the censoring side. Which side believes in censorship and which side believes in letting people say what they want? Generally speaking, the side with the weak data is the side that doesn't want the other side to talk. The side that is nervous about the strength of their arguments is going to want to shut the other side down, not, not let them near the microphone. I am a vaccine skeptic. I die, I'm death on the, the mandates. Uh, it's a good way. That's a good way of getting everybody suspicious about them. But it's not because I saw one story here or there. You see a story, you check it out, and then when you start talking about what you've learned when you've checked something out, and you have your uh, YouTube posting pulled or censored, or you're put in Facebook jail, or you're kicked off of Twitter, that should tell you something. Continuing with the podcast, episode two twenty one. In our treatment of sins in the New Testament, which we are calling hamartiology, we've occasionally had to deal with something that is not necessarily a sin, and whether or not it is a sin depends on the direct object. Remember, we've gone, gone over this before. Uh, I love fill in the blank, but you don't know if that person is virtuous or, or licentious until you know what the direct object is. If the person finishes the sentence with, I love Jesus, or I love my mom, or I love ice cream, that person is fine. If the person says, I love the devil or I love child porn, then that person is wicked. The verb love doesn't tell you anything. You, there's, some, there's some words that just take on their meaning uh, in context, and the direct object is part of that context. We have one like that in this installment, uh, but because there's, there's only one usage of it in the New Testament, and it's an occasion of sin, I'm going to include it here. Uh, the word is ekthetos, ekthetos, and means cast out, E-K-T-H-E-T-O-S, ekthetos, and it means cast out. This is um, in Acts 7.19. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children, to the end they might not live. So Stephen is giving his speech to the Sanhedrin here in Acts 7. And he recounts the time that Pharaoh was requiring the Israelites to practice infanticide with all their male children. The mother of Moses obeyed the order, kind of, technically, but managed to circumvent the intent of it. She nurtured the baby for a few months to make, to make the exposure less dangerous for him, 
and then she built him a little boat so she could put him in the Nile without hurting him. So we can gather from this that the practice of exposure in Egypt apparently was conducted by means of throwing the children into the river. So she, um, she built him a little boat so that she could throw him in the river and he would be safe. Her resistance and that of the Hebrew midwives who resisted Pharaoh in this same wickedness is much to be commended. And, and Stephen is saying that this uh, decision by Pharaoh uh, is a subtle treatment, evil treatment, and, and we can see from what was required, it was a murderous treatment. And one thing, while we're talking about uh, Stephen's speech, let me uh, say this before moving on. Sometimes it's easy to think that S- Stephen is hauled before the—he's uh, a deacon in the early church. He uh, vigorously refuted—he he vigorously dealt with uh, Jews who couldn't answer him. He then gets hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, and he gives them a history lesson of, of, of Israel's history, which he concludes by calling them names. And I think it was George Bernard Shaw that said that he fully understood why uh, Stephen was stoned, because that, that's what he thought he did. He just gave uh, you know, a speech that the contents of which everybody there in the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin already knew, uh, and then he called them a bunch of names, and they lost their tempers and killed him. The problem with that is that you're not, you're not looking at Stephen's speech closely. Stephen is accused of speaking against this holy place and against the temple, right? He's in Jerusalem. He's accused of sacrilege, in, a, in effect, and he's accused of speaking against the holy place and the temple. And if you notice, all the way through his speech, he's talking about great fathers in the faith, Joseph and Moses and Abraham, for example. I'll just take three examples. God appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Now, notice that. God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, not the Holy Land, not this territory right up the street. God appeared to Moses in, uh, Abraham in Mesopotamia. Or God appeared to Moses in the land of Midian and said, the place you're standing is holy ground. Well, holy ground in Midian? Really? Seriously? Joseph was falsely accused, locked up in prison in Egypt. And it says, but God was with him. Really? In Egypt? Really? Okay. So, uh, Stephen's, Stephen's point in this is, is a pointed point. His, he is saying that basically he is in line, he is in sync with the Hebrew patriarchs, and the heirs of the patriarchs are not. So, remember, it was Herod the Great who killed all the boy children in the neighborhood of Bethlehem, becoming a new pharaoh. So, Herod the Great becomes a new pharaoh, killing the boy children. And then when the heirs of Moses hear Stephen give his speech, they look on him at the end of it, and they, they saw that his face was shining like that of an angel. Well, who else had a face that shone like an angel's? Well, Moses. So the heirs of Moses stopped their ears and rushed upon Moses in order to kill him. Continuing on with uh, episode 221 of the podcast, we come to our book review section. And I'm going to do something here that I don't usually uh, do. I recently read a book that I want to uh, 
sort of pick up with a pair of tongs, hold it out at arm's length, and commend it to you. <laughs> All right. So this book is um, uh, a book called The Rational Male uh, by Rollo Tomasi. The Rational Male by Rollo Tomasi. And this book is part of what's called The Manosphere, which is an online development of recent years. Uh, you might call it a reaction to feminism, uh, a kickback against feminism. There are different, um, the, uh, obviously, we're dealing with millions and billions of men all over the world, and uh, not all of them are part of this, obviously, but a lot are. And there are variations, uh, different wings, different groups. There's the MGTOW group. Uh, MGTOW stands for men going their own way, men going their own way, MGTOW. Then there's the PUA guys who are pickup artists, the pickup artists who, are, who have analyzed feminine psychology for their own seductive purposes. Then you've got sort of a uh, more straightforward, semi-responsible group, and they, they are clustered in this thing online called the Manosphere. Uh, Rollo Tomasi started off with a blog that attracted a bunch of people and then a number of these of, of his posts were collected in this book called The Rational Male. Now, the thing the thing that's striking about this book is that it is depending on where you are, depending on what page you're on, or depending sometimes what part of the sentence you're in, uh, the book is absolutely appalling. I mean, just really appalling. When it comes when it comes to Christian sexual ethics, for example, or when it comes to a Christian view of the creation order, he's, he's just not, he doesn't take uh, the word of God into account, not even a little bit. A man's desire to have multiple women and to, and to score with them and to move on is just taken for granted. He's operating out of an evolutionary paradigm. Why do women act the way they do? Well, it's an evolutionary adaptation. Why do men act the way they do? Well, it's an evolutionary adaptation, and so on. That said, so I, uh, I want to emphasize that, jump up and down on it. There are things here which a, a Christian pastor would, you know, just, this is, this is horrendous. This is awful. Then there will be things that he says that are so obviously scriptural, so obviously in line with what the world is like, so obviously in tune with the nature of men and women, and equally obviously denied by uh, your standard issue evangelical big box preacher. So th uh, the complementarianism was intended at the beginning to be a nice word for patriarchy, uh, but it, it turned out to be an emollient where we, we put this uh, patriarchy in this um, soft case. And after 20 years, we opened the case and discovered that it softened everything inside. So complementarianism is uh, supposed to be sort of patriarchy with a smile. But in many quarters, um, complementarianism is now egalitarianism. And if you want something that, that preserves the biblical ethic, you're going to have to do a yeah, but regardless of what you do. So you might as well say, I think, you might as well say, yeah, I believe in a biblical patriarchy or a Christian patriarchy, but not a secular patriarchy, the kind 
that you might run into if uh, one of the um, guys represented by this book uh, were in charge. Nevertheless, he says things that are true. And as people who realize that all truth is God's truth, when he says something that's true, we ought to be willing to learn from it. Men and women are different. Their approach to life is different. Their approach to the other sex is different. Their approach to sexual intercourse is different. And we can account for it as Christians. We can account for this uh, by saying this is a creation design issue. And so Christians are dealing with two factors. One is God's creation design, and the other is the doctrine of the fall. So God gave us this intricately designed, wonderful world, and then we smashed it in the fall. And so we've got this wonderful mechanism, male and female, bears the image of God. And as we bear the image of God, male and female, we have to recognize that that image is marred, that image was vandalized by the entrance of sin. And Jesus came into the world to restore that image, and we, are, we Christians are part of that restoration project. What Tomasi will say is there are uh, certain things that he, he says that men want to do because this is what evolution requires of them. This is what the evolutionary imperative would say. Women want something different because of evolution. So, uh, I don't recall if this was his specific example, but I think this is a good example of what I'm talking about. On evolutionary assumptions, the man wants to propagate his own seed. He, he wants as many descendants as possible because there's a genetic imperative. The DNA wants to replicate. And so, what on evolutionary assumptions, what does a man want to do? Well, he wants to impregnate as many females as he can. I remember reading somewhere what percentage of East Asia is descended from Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan had a lot of women and had a lot of children and has a lot of descendants, like many, many, many descendants. And so he would be sort of, let's retire his jersey in, the, in Evolution's Hall of Fame. So what he did is he preserved his seed and in male logic, the best way to do it, since sperm is plentiful and cheap, is to broadcast it. Plant it everywhere you can, everywhere you can get away with, and uh, there's safety in numbers. That's an evolutionary strategy for men. Now, women are the ones who get pregnant and have to carry the child when they are pregnant. Uh, well, because in their capacity to bear children, they are more vulnerable than the men are. In their pregnancy, they're way more vulnerable than the men are. And once they have a baby and a baby to take care of, and the baby that came out of them, and they're the ones holding the baby, they have a different interest. Their interest, according to evolution, would be to team up with an alpha male who is going to stick around and who will protect her, provide for her, and provide security for her one child. So, a woman can't spread out, uh, go across the country, and have a hundred babies. A man can have a hundred children far more easily than a woman can have a hundred children. A man can have a hundred biological children far more easily than a woman can have a hundred biological children. 
So that's how you would explain it in evolutionary terms. A creation and fall narrative would say that God created the man to protect his wife and to provide for her. That's the, the, the impetus to protect and provide comes from a creation design, and the woman as the life giver, the nurturer, that too is a creation of creation design. And men want to protect and provide in a way that feathers their own nest because of sin. And so they are selfish with their position that they've been given. And women want to be selfish with the position that they've been given because of the fall. Anyway, caveat emptor, buyer beware. If you read The Rational Mail, or if you already have, I would just tell you there's a bunch of garbage in there. A lot of, there's a lot of garbage. There's also a lot of good. There's, and someone might say, why would you read a book? that has a lot of garbage in it. Well, because there's gold in the garbage, and that gold is gold that Christians, very or very few Christians, are pointing to. Just a handful of Christians uh, are, are recognizing some, some of the things that you'll get from someone like Tomasi without the corruptions would be from people like Michael Foster, uh, It's Good to Be a Man, or Aaron Wren, or people uh, that are part of that project. For more on masculinity from Canon Press, check out It's Good to Be a Man by Michael Foster and Dominic Nontenna. Now available at canonpress.com.